This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. We just had a downpour here in the Universal City area where our studio is, so please be careful out there. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and life questions and anything else on your heart and mind. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, especially if it's wet where you are, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature of your phone with the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I hope you had a great weekend at church. We did. Had a wonderful afterglow Friday night. You know, it's been with the pandemic It's been a very long time, I think more than a a year and a half about since our last afterglow. And that's a time when the gifts of the Spirit are able to flow a little bit. And we can um, um, just let the Spirit of God minister to the body through the body. And we just had a wonderful turnout and a wonderful uh, time. The Lord really spoke to our heart. And I had this sense that he was really trying to get deep. Uh, And then when we came here on Saturday morning for corporate prayer, uh, Paul and I were both remarking that that uh, it, there, there was a lot of sadness, people really dealing with things, and that's what God wanted to do. So I uh, hope you had a great weekend at church as well. One final thought before we go to a phone call. Um, tonight we have our men's and women's and youth Bible studies. You can bring the whole family at 7 o'clock. They meet together for worship, and then they go their separate ways. But uh, the ladies tonight are going to be doing their final week of retreat reflection. It's always a good time to hear what the Lord has been doing in their lives. Well, let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, haven't heard from you for a little bit. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, I've been listening to you on the the radio. Um, And I watch your sermons on Sundays. Cool. Uh, (laughs) I was going to tell you that... um, um, I'm confused about this. Okay, is there going to be a great revival be- before the Great Tribulation, or is, I, I believe it's going to happen after, right? Uh, the twelve uh, tribes of Israel will be showing up during the Great Tribulation, according to Revelation. 
Well, you said, you, you, yeah, Jimmy, you said the, a revival. Um, did you mean the rapture of the church? Well, I know that in first the rapture of the church is going to happen, um, <clears throat> where we're going to be taken up with Christ and uh, for the great banquet or the wedding. Um, but I was just wondering because I hear different stories, and I'm trying to do some research on it, and I'm like confused, and <laughs> I'm, like, and yeah. I'm confused. Yeah, I got you, Jimmy. I know. Now, I thought I just misunderstood. Um, 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 two things. One, let's all pray together that there is one more revival, one more move of God's spirit throughout this world before the rapture of the church. I'd like to participate in that. I think it would be great if that final harvest uh, that, that sort of ushered in the rapture of the church. Uh, I'd love to be a part of it. love to see the spirit of God move the last revival that we had. Uh, in the world, the last move of God's spirit that, that everybody could see. I mean, there's little mini revivals all the time and in, in, in individual revivals. But the Jesus movement um, of the, the 60s and 70s, the late 60s and 70s, was really the last um, long-lasting, far-reaching move of God's spirit. And, and I'm hopeful, Jimmy, I'm really, really hopeful that there will be one more move of God's Spirit before the rapture of the church. Now, when we get into the Great Tribulation, there will be the by far the greatest revival in the history of the world. And that revival is going to happen, um, uh, Jimmy, sort of being led by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. That's chapter 7 in the book of Revelation 12 thousand Jews from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 supernaturally empowered men who are going to go out to the, the farthest most parts of the world and proclaim the gospel. And people are going to get saved left and right. And, and the revival is going to be and It's so exciting. I almost wish I was going to be here for the Great Tribulation. Almost. I don't really want to be here for that. But but that's how far-reaching the revival is going to be. The other consequence of that revival, Jimmy, is that most of those people who get saved are going to be martyred for their faith. They're going to be put to death, executed by the Antichrist and, and his forces, whatever form they take. Uh, and so the people who wait until the Great Tribulation then get saved are going to pay the ultimate price with their lives, and then they're going to be uh, with the Lord. Uh, we find them in the book of Revelation under the altar of God, crying out for vengeance. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our souls? And uh, the answer is just a little while longer. And of course, uh, then they're uh, going to be in heaven forever and ever with us. So, Jimmy, that's the answer. There will be a great revival. Um, but um, it's going to cost people everything. You know, uh, Jimmy and the rest of you in the audience, I had somebody tell me one time, said, well, well, you know, uh, I'm not sure about Jesus now, but if there's a rapture, then I'll be sure, and that's when I'll get saved. And I always tell people, look, if you won't get saved now when grace is free, when it costs nothing, what makes you think you're going to receive Jesus Christ when it's going to cost you everything, including your life? So, Jimmy, that's the thing that we got to look forward to. We can pray for one more revival, and then we're going to be with Jesus, and then there'll be the greatest revival in the history of the world. Jimmy, really good to hear from you. Thank you for calling. Let me get to a um, question from Charles. 
So, Pastor Ron, last week you said you wouldn't have pastors on your staff that have div- divergent views. Why are you afraid of being challenged? Charles, uh, that's a little bit judgmental, I think. Don't you think that's a little judgmental? I explained to the question last week why I wouldn't have divergent views. It has nothing to do with being challenged. Uh, I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. Uh God has given us a work to do here, and the people that we want around us are people who have a similar vision. Different gifts, different personalities, and different styles, but they've all got a a similar vision, and we're all walking together. There's nothing worse that could happen. If there was somebody on my staff who believed, and I'll just use this as an example because it's always a lightning rod. Well, I'm a Calvinist. I think Calvinism is the only way. And imagine me teaching a Bible study and then him going to people and saying, well, you know, I don't think what Pastor Ron said was right. We want people to be able to walk together. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And... um we here at our church, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we're all going the same direction. We've bought into the vision that God has given us. We're thrilled to be a part of what he's doing. And, um, you know, the vision in the body is not a good thing. So, Charles, maybe you ought to feel a little bit guilty for judging. But, no, I'm not afraid of being challenged at all. Um, I know what I believe. Here is a question from Les. He said, Les says, what is your opinion on pastors who work secular jobs and pastor their church? Uh, Les, I look at those men as almost heroic figures. You have no idea how difficult it is pastoring a church. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back when I say this at all. I have the best job ever, and I work with the best people ever. I mean, I, I'm, I'm right in the middle of God's will for my life, and that's the only place to be. But being a pastor is difficult. Uh, you're, you're bearing burdens for a, a whole lot of people. We have a bunch of people right now in the hospital with very, very serious illnesses. Please keep Jory uh, in your prayers and Tricia and, and uh, uh, Gary. And, and there are so many others who are going through really difficult things. Um, and you bear the burdens. You, you share their pain with them. That's, that's a difficult thing. Um, um, setting the Bible... Um, really being convinced of what you believe takes a lot of time and investment. Uh, it's not physical work. I mean, I certainly don't work as hard as a plumber or or a contractor or people that, that, that really work for a living. Uh, but there's a lot of spiritual warfare. There's a lot of emotion. Uh, and so it's hard. Now, all of that to say this, I can't imagine doing what I do if I had to work a 40-hour work week. I just can't imagine. These guys who work during the day and study at night and prepare Bible studies once or twice a week, uh, and they also have families at home to support, uh, those are people that demonstrate what commitment really is about. They're like the Apostle Paul when he said, I'm willing to to, to, to spend and be spent. And, and a lot of these guys, I know them. Uh, a lot of them uh, work until there's nothing left at all. And then they somehow get up and do it all over again. So uh, I have the highest regard for them. Um, I, I can say that less while at the same time saying that I think that every pastor 
in a church, and, and I don't mean just people called to be a pastor, but, but, but if you've got people who call you pastor, I think the thing that they need the most is a full-time pastor. Um, there's a lot of people reluctant to, to burden the church with their financial needs, um, but, but they need a pastor who's available when difficult things happen. They need a pastor uh, who's going to be able to answer the phone, a pastor who's going to be able to come and, and comfort them during during trials. And um, uh, I think less that that uh, the calling to be a pastor is such that it requires our full attention. And so I think those men, as admirable as what they're doing is, I think they ought to be seeking the Lord constantly for the opportunity to go full-time into ministry. Not to make a lot of money, that's not the point but in order to be able to be available to the people in their church. Good question. I appreciate that one less a whole bunch. Jermaine, our next question says, Oh, Jermaine, I saw this question. This is probably 10 days old. Um, and, and I've been sort of giggling about it ever since. Uh, Jermaine asks, how does a pastor stay humble and avoid being filled with pride? Um, I didn't know the questions today were all going to come up about, about pastors. Um, uh, 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 somebody with a real pastor's heart has no difficulty staying humble. Believe me, God um, humbles us. Uh, the people that we have the privilege of serving, they humble us. Um, you know, we realize, Jermaine, how inadequate we really are I think sometimes if you see a pastor who's uh, prancing on a stage and he acts like he's got all the answers and uh, he, he's got a persona that's sort of like a he thinks he's a star kind of thing, um, man, those are those are men that really haven't gotten close to the Lord. Because the one thing I can tell you is every single time I stand in front of people, I am in awe, in a fearing the Lord kind of awe to rightly represent him. I don't want my Bible studies to be about me. I don't want people coming up to me and saying, oh, great message, Pastor Ron. Uh, I, I don't want that. Now, th- that happens. And I appreciate it. I always answer, well, that says a whole lot more about your heart. When they say, God spoke to my heart, I'll say, well, that, that speaks more about your heart than certainly about anything that I said. And we realize, we walk away from those conversations, Jermaine, um, aware that there's nothing good in us and every good thing that comes from us is just the Holy Spirit working out His will in and through our lives. So it's really easy uh, to stay humble. Um, You know, I I personally, Jermaine, I'm a man of conviction. I believe what I believe, and nobody's going to change my mind. But that's because the Holy Spirit's convinced me, and I'm going to fight the fights. If people want to come in and and bring different views, uh, we're not going to let that happen. Um, But that's not pride at all. That's simply uh, walking in the humility that uh, a leader must have. The Apostle Paul uh, struggle with pride. We know that because his thorn in the flesh was was given so that he wouldn't be con- conceited because of the surpassingly great revelations he had. I think every single man who is being used by God to do what I'm privileged to do, uh, we are truly aware, uh, acutely aware, 
of the fact that it is all him and it has nothing to do with us. You know, it's an amazing thing. We come off the pulpit and um, we realize that we just had a part of being used by the Lord. And that in and of itself, Jermaine, is really, really humbling. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to line one. Bob from San Antonio. Bob, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, uh, I guess that's me, unless you have a different Bob. Um, nope, you're, you're I'm, it. I, I'm it, okay. Well, here's my question, and I'm just kind of getting a parameters for, for what you're saying. Uh, I uh, Let's say that I was uh, very active in the church, and been there 20 years, and uh, taught Bible classes, did ministries, volunteered, did several things, even down in Mexico. But... Uh, that I got married, and I married a person that was a Catholic, mm. and uh, and um, that uh, the pastor who's been there less than I have um, had a difficulty with that, and uh, there's no issue about where I stand on that thing, and uh, I, and um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are. I can elucidate if you'd like to hear it, but. I'm not going to name any names, but I was wondering, uh, but I, I'll just say that his concern was, well, what would happen if I was, let's say, doing ministry, even building a home down in Mexico, and uh, somebody asked me, is it okay to marry a Catholic? And I would tell them to, well, I did, but, and when I was asked that, I said, well, here's what I would do. I would tell them that you should do what the church and your pastor leads you to do. Go discuss that with them. Primarily, pray on it, think about it, and you've got to make a decision what's right and wrong on your own. But I, I did think that it's improper to punish an innocent person with uh, based on somebody else's uh, situation or their guilt, if you will. Would you like to share your thoughts with me? Okay, Bob, I'll be happy to do that. You know, and, and let, let, me, let me preface this by saying, um, that uh, um, I appreciate your 20 years plus uh, of work for the Lord. Um, but you said something in, in the description there. You, you said um, you, would, you would counsel somebody to do um, what's right in their own eyes or in their own heart or words to that effect when it comes to the decision of marrying a Catholic. Um, uh, I love Catholics. We want them in heaven. Um, but but the Bible is clear. Now, I'm, I'm speaking to somebody who was a Bible teacher, led Bible studies, and the one thing that no Bible teacher ever should tell somebody is to do what feels right in their own heart. We should tell them to do what God told them to do. And we're, we're, we're admonished in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 um, not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And, and a Catholic, I realize, is not always an unbeliever. They believe in the same Father. They believe in the same Son. They believe in the same Holy Spirit. But, but even if they're born again, there's an unequal yoking. You're going one direction, and, and your wife would be going a different direction. If she's not born again, Bob, and, and uh, you know, most Catholics are not. Uh, I, I always get a lot of heat from Catholics when I say that. But, but the Catholic Church doesn't teach that you have to be born again, or at least they teach that, that uh, the, the issue of being born again is settled with infant baptism, which is nonsense. So uh, what I would say is it's not a matter of punishment or guilt. 
It's just that in in willfully rebelling against what the word says, uh, I too would have a problem with that. If one of my pastors came to me and said, um, uh, if somebody, and I don't have any single pastors, so. Um, um, I'm, 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 this is uh, just the situation I'm thinking about. Um, if they came to me and said, you know, I'm falling in love with somebody and I'm going to marry him, they're a Catholic, um, I would let them know that, that that violates what the Scripture says about being uh, unequally yoked with unbelievers and, and ask them, um, you know, I invest a lot in my pastors and um, it doesn't diminish who they are. It doesn't diminish the Bible knowledge that they have. But what it does is it raises a conflict between what they know to be true and what the outcome of their activity or their behavior is. And all of my pastors, Bob, know that we've got to do what we tell others. And I have had so many painful counseling sessions over 26 years uh, as that, that are a result of marriages that are unequally yoked. And uh, I would have a problem with that as well, and I probably would ask um, that pastor to step down. Um, not because he's done anything wrong. Uh, he's certainly not a victim. You're not a victim. You made the choice to marry her. Uh, as a Bible teacher, you knew what the Word said, but you did it anyway. And um, I think I think there's an accountability for that. Um, I'll go one step further, Bob, and take it out of the situation that you're in. But I tell all of my pastors that if their marriages have problems, they're going to step down. They're going to step aside until those problems are resolved. Because we can't have people who are teaching the Word of God not doing in their own lives what they teach others to do. We're accountable. James says to be not hearers only, but to be doers of the Word. And in an unequally yoked marriage, there's so many conflicts, so many compromises, and uh, it just, it's a ministry killer, Bob. And I would, as your pastor did, have a problem with that. Now, I would hope, I would be gracious, I would be grateful for the time that you served, uh, but uh, I can't envision, now, it's always dangerous to say things like this, uh, but most of my pastors have been with me for a very, very long time. Uh, many of them have grown up here. Some of them even got saved here. And I can't imagine um, um, that, that that happening to any one of them because these, is, these are issues that have been settled. Let me say one thing else. I'm going to have uh, uh, Pastor Chris Garcia, who uh, is uh, a pastor we sent out to plant a church in central Mexico. Um, I, I can't say the, the word. Baja. Pajacuran, Mexico. Uh, and, and you know, the thing that he's fighting there is uh, Catholicism is so embedded in the culture. And uh, if, if Chris were, for example, to say, well, being a Catholic is okay when, when he's been taught and he's believed that you must be born again, uh, that would be a real problem. So adherence to the word, not just what we know, but are we doing what we know? Those are the things, Bob, that are really important. So I'm sorry that you feel like a victim, uh, but you made the choice. You're not you, you're not guilty. Um, obviously, you love your wife, and I think that's a great thing. But you should have known when you made the decision to begin a relationship with a, uh, a Catholic 
uh, that that you are unequally yoked and there would be consequences that it would truly affect your ministry. So, Bob, thank you for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. If you'd like to talk about it in more depth, you, we can do that at another time. Thanks a lot. Last question for this half of the program. Danny says, why do preachers insist on absence from alcohol when the Bible does not? Uh, Danny, I know a lot of preachers do insist on it. I don't. I recommend it strongly. Um, nothing good happens from alcohol. Nothing good ever happens from alcohol. Every pastor that you're talking about has dealt in counseling with um, more horrible crises that are a result of alcohol and the effects of alcohol in somebody's life than you can possibly imagine. And when you see so much pain, um, it's just sort of a gut reaction. Bad things don't happen to people who don't drink. Bad things do happen to people who do. It's just that simple. And um, um, what we tell people here at Calvary Chapel is, is I wish the Bible said alcohol drinking alcohol at all was a sin, but it doesn't. So you can exercise your freedom to 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 drink moderately. However, the question, and we covered it in our Bible study yesterday, uh, Paul says all things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. And there's no conceivable way that drinking alcohol at any level is beneficial to your walk with Jesus. It doesn't bring you closer to Jesus. So um, that's the approach, the balanced approach, I think, with alcohol. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let me save everybody some emails and um, and uh, angry phone calls, um, I, I want to make this clear. Um, I get asked a lot of Catholic questions. Uh, I don't bash Catholics. Um, I'm a guy who really believes that the Bible is the Word of God. I believe that Jesus is in charge. I'm his servant. And we have to do what he tells us to do. And when he tells us, in this case, not to be unequally yoked, there is a price to pay, a consequence for disobedience. And we who are Bible teachers are more accountable. To much is given, much more is required, Jesus said. So uh, we love Catholics. If I asked in our church how many people... In the church, came from Catholic backgrounds, more than 90% of the people in this church would raise their hands. Um, But we want Catholics saved. We want them in heaven. And you don't get to heaven by being a Catholic. You get to heaven by being born again, believing in Jesus Christ, and living a life committed to his lordship. And that's simply not characteristic of Catholics or the Catholic church. So... 
save yourself the time of being angry and typing me <laughs> angry messages. Here's a question from Nathan. He says, Jesus told people he healed to go and sin no more. Why then are we so tolerant of people continuing to sin? And should we get to a place where we do not sin any longer? Two different questions, Nathan. Um, you're, you're right. Jesus told people to go and sin no more. Uh, that was important. He said that to the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Uh, he said that to the man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda. But but that's something that we should tell everybody. When when and and I, I when you say why are we so tolerant of people continuing to sin? I don't think we are in the church. I think we are aware that people sin. They make terrible terrible choices. But but we're not tolerant of it. When we know people are sinning, um, we we talk to them about it. We we insist that they do uh, that they change that they repent. Uh, but the truth is, we can't make people stop sinning. I had a question from a young man that was asking me about about uh, uh, if if divorces are forbidden, why why do we allow people to get divorced? We can't tell people what to do. So no one's tolerant. Now progressive churches, of course, are, but they're not really Christian churches. But but I don't think real churches are are tolerant of sin at all, and we warn them continually as we teach the Bible about it, because the Bible warns them continually. So, Nathan, um, we tell people exactly the same thing. When somebody comes and gets saved, we had people get saved here yesterday, and when they come up, we let them know, now go and sin no more. You don't have to sin anymore. In fact, my message yesterday from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, especially at the beginning when we start, we were talking about verse 13, is everyone who leaves this Bible study is accountable because now we know we never have to sin again. Now we will, we're weak, we're flesh and blood, but we don't have to. And when we sin, it's on us, it's disobedient. So Nathan, I don't think we're tolerant of, of people who continue to sin. Now, the question that should we get to a place where we do not sin any longer, Nathan, that's not going to happen until we get to heaven. We still have the sin nature. Uh, the Apostle John says, if any of you out there says you have no sin, um, he's very blunt. You're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So we're going to continue to sin, but we should sin less and less and less and less. We should always be aiming for perfection. We should be wanting with all of our heart to be without sin. But when we sin, we have an advocate. The Lord Jesus Christ, who if we confess our sins to him, he will be faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Unfortunately, Nathan, as long as we are in these flesh and blood bodies, we're going to sin because we have a sin nature. But we don't need to keep sinning. And when we sin, it ought to break our hearts because it breaks the fellowship that Jesus paid so dearly for. And not only does it break the fellowship with him, his heart is broken as well. So I hope that makes sense to you. But please don't fall for there's a bunch of teaching out there that that Christians can be sinless. Um, we can achieve sinless perfection. We can't, and that is a lie of the devil. In fact, again, in my Bible study, um, the Bible study said, uh, uh, be careful, for those of you who think you stand in the face of temptation, lest you fall. I think we can be... Uh, caught off guard. 
Here's a question that was just called into the studio from Tom. Why is the Pope considered the vicar? Uh, the vicar is just the voice of God, the, the God's spokesman on earth. And the Catholic Church declares that the Pope is God speaking here for, he's speaking for God with the authority of God uh, on earth. Uh, we know, Tom, that that's not true. We know that it's it's not true. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus was the living word. Now we have the written word. And, and the Bible is the voice of God on earth. Um, and and uh, the Holy Spirit is given to each and every one of us who are truly born again so that we can understand and then obey what the Bible says. But... Uh, you know, when when somebody says, I'm an apostle, that's a self-proclaimed title. Well, the, the Pope has been given that title by the church throughout the centuries, and that's tradition. It's just sort of like the Pope is the final voice, but that's just not true. Paul, in writing to the Church of the Hebrews, he said in the past, and there's only two ways that God has ever spoken to people. He said in the past, God has spoken to us in many ways, and in various times, through the prophets. But in these last days, the days that we're in, Tom, in these last days, he's spoken to us in Son, literally. That means Jesus is his final word. And that's why the word of God is so important. So uh, a Catholic would give you uh, an answer that talks about tradition and and um, um the 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 office of the pope being handed from one to another the the meeting of the cardinals where the pope is elected is the hand of god moving to select uh the man that would be his voice on earth uh but we just know that's sort of useless tradition and it's not true at all here is a question from rob he said i want to know what you think is the greatest threat to biblical christianity today Oh, Rob, the greatest. Um, um, there's so many. Let, let me start with the not-so-greatest. Um, spiritual laziness. Um, we are a biblically illiterate world, uh, and especially here in the West. Um, and as long as we're lazy, the enemy is going to pound us, and he's going to have opportunity after opportunity uh, to destroy the church. And we know that the church will not uh, be destroyed. The gates of hell will not prevail. But but believe me, biblical illiteracy, the lack of solid Bible teaching, and the lack of interest in learning the Bible uh, in the pews uh, is a huge, huge threat. And and certainly the enemy uses that to weaken the church and, and for us to fall into compromise. Um, I think... It's also true that um, comfort is a threat to biblical Christianity. Uh, again, especially here in the West, we think that if we serve God, everything should go well with us, and we don't realize that the church has been built throughout the centuries for 2,000 years. The church has been built on the blood of the martyrs of the church, people that were persecuted. The church has always grown. church has always grown. Um, when persecution was the worst. And we're so comfortable that uh, we just want to live our lives. It's sort of we're disconnected from the reality of the Christian experience. 
So I, I think comfort and prosperity uh, is is a threat. Now, let me get to the thing that I think is the greatest threat. I think that we have just decided as a culture that the Bible is no longer the Word of God. And I think, Rob, the great falling away that Second Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks about has already begun. It has already begun. I think we have uh, entered that time where the world is now being made ripe for the appearance of the Antichrist. Um, that day will not come until first there be a falling away or a great apostasy. Uh, and, and I believe with all of my heart, now you know if you've been listening to this program, that I think Jesus is coming at any time. Uh, I think that falling away is what we're watching happening. We're seeing, uh, forget nations, I'll just talk about the, the, the professing church of Jesus Christ. We're seeing so-called Christian churches embracing perversions of sexuality. We're seeing in churches, mostly charismatic and or prosperity churches, we're seeing a proliferation of women preachers in the pulpits simply because they don't care what the Bible says. We're seeing sin accepted. Isaiah chapter 5 says, speaking of Israel, but it applies to us as well. Um, We live in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good. A time where we're no longer ashamed of sin. And that's the falling away, Rob, that has already started that will precede not only the rapture of the church, but than to uh, to follow the Great Tribulation. So uh, those are what I think is the greatest threat to biblical Christianity. Let me ask you the question, though, Rob, and this is for everybody in the audience. I think the important thing is, is will we sit down and identify the greatest threats to our own Christian walk? I mean, we can talk about what's happening in the greater body of Christ, but what about the threats to our own walk. Have we gotten to the place where we really hate sin? Are we repenting when we find ourselves in disobedience? Are we spiritually lazy? Have we fallen out of love with Jesus? I think all those things um, are things that we really have to be concerned about. Let's go to Jeff on line one. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I'm calling from Sam Antonio. Um, I'm not in San Antonio anymore. He <laughs> gets it wrong. <laughs> Sam Antonio. I I got you. And Sam Sam is giggling over here. Yeah, I think you said that last week once yourself. Uh, Calvary Chapel in Sam Antonio. And, uh, I, I must I must have been delirious, Jeff. <laughs> well, you know, last <laughs> night I was delirious. Because I was dreaming all night, you're not going to believe this, but all night about donuts and sea monkeys. And I have no <laughs> idea where that came from. <laughs> somebody, the, the, Jeff, funny story, really quickly. This morning, somebody knocked on our door and handed Paula a bag with two donuts in it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, look, I'm the old guy on a diet who craves donuts. You can't do that to me. They did that on purpose, I'm sure. Not, I yeah. think it was you know, rather to kind of be funny. Hey, uh, um, <laughs> you're, you're, 
you were just talking about the, the threats to our own walk, and that dovetails into what I wanted to ask you to comment on. And it was from your sermon yesterday, but from that verse in First Corinthians ten twenty three, the believer's freedom, our right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial, not everything is constructive. And I'm just going to let you go to town on that, Pastor, and I'm going to hang up the phone. We'll see y'all later. Thank, Love you. Bye. Thank you, Jeff. God bless you. Uh, Jeff's talking about, I, I did an illustration in the study yesterday about a guy who, who was on a diet but craved donuts, an old guy, and I, I told our church, now this, this is autobiographical, but I said, uh, uh, you know, he said, okay, Lord, if you don't want me to have a donut, just don't let there be a parking place in front of the donut shop. And uh, sure enough, when he got to the donut shop, there was a parking place right in front of you. Okay, Lord, you guess you want me to have a donut? And the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, yeah, but that was your 20th time around the parking lot waiting for the spot. And, um, um, you know, that's just the idea of, of, of I'm free to eat donuts, to answer Jeff's question. But are donuts good for me? Now, when the donuts were dropped off today, my first thought was, well, wait a minute. I'm saving my year's quote of a donut for vacation that will be coming up at the end of June uh, because there's a donut place we love out there and, and we're, we're exercising while we're out there. But, but um, you know, the idea that Jeff is talking about where Paul is dealing with this carnal Corinthian church, and they were carnal. And there were people insisting there on using their Christian liberty to do what they wanted to do, and nobody else had any right to say anything about it. But but Paul says, look, all things are permissible. In other words, and this is a three-chapter Bible study in the sense that this whole line of thought started way back in chapter 8. And Paul's essentially saying, yes, there are things that you're free to do in Christ. That eating a donut's not sin. But is it good for you? Does it bring you closer to Jesus? And in in um, honesty, and this is where I really believe God was asking us to search our hearts, to, to identify those things in our walk that we're free to do, but the things that really aren't good for us to do. And I think we all have our own list of those things, Jeff. So uh, we've got to decide. And when Paul was saying, uh, all things are permissible for me, he's quoting the Corinthians themselves. That's why there are quotes in that passage. And then very sternly he says, yeah, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible, and then again sternly. But not all things are constructive or edifying. And I think that needs to be the measure we use when it comes to deciding what we're going to use our freedom to do. You know, I have a weakness for donuts. I have a weakness for uh, some cakes. Um... I'm free to eat them. But if I want to stay healthy, if I want to serve the Lord, then I have to, what what value is there in my walk with Jesus Christ? And the payoff, of course, is when you're walking in the will of God for your life. Life is so rich and so full. So that's the, the story with the donuts and things like that. Oh, my producer just said today is National Cherry Cobbler Day. I bind you, Satan. So, (laughs) National Cherry Cobbler Day. Thank you, Jeff, for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's an anonymous question. Why do a lot of Christians pick and choose between parts of the Mosaic Law to follow and other parts they choose not to follow? If we take the Bible literally, don't we have to take it all? 
To me, that's hypocrisy, Anonymous says. Anonymous, here's the thing that you've got to understand. We don't follow the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law wasn't written for us. And see, that's what people don't understand. Simple Bible study. A hermeneutic is simple. Who is the the author speaking to? What is he trying to say? And then what's the application of it? Well, the Mosaic Law was given to the nation of Israel. It wasn't given to Christians. And I don't know for the life of me why this is so hard for people to understand. When Moses was given the law, God said to him, say to Israel or say to the Israelites or say to my people. Jesus abandoned the law after fulfilling it by establishing a new covenant. A new law, the royal law of love, but the new covenant written in his blood was a covenant of grace. And so I, I, the, the Mosaic law is important, and I, I enjoy studying it. But um, it, it, it tells me two things, the Mosaic law. And this was God's purpose in giving it to the Jews in the first place. One, he wanted them to know who he was. And God is so consumingly holy. And by giving them the law that identified who he was, what his character was really like, there was this healthy fear of God. Imagine those Jews that were standing around the mountain. They couldn't touch it, but around the mountain. And it was shaking and trembling and smoking. There was a fear of God. Well, the reason that they need to fear God was because God wanted them to live in a way that was different from the pagan peoples around them so that those pagan peoples could see that the Jewish God was different, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we don't have to obey the Mosaic Law at all. Now, a lot of it is really good for us. If you look at the Ten Commandments, just the beginning of the Mosaic Law, if you look at the Ten Commandments, Nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that's left off is Sabbath worship. So Anonymous, be a workman, rightly dividing the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved so that you don't get trapped in questions like this. The Mosaic Law was for Israel. Jesus fulfilled it. Does it still tell us who God is? Yes, it does. More importantly, It demonstrates our need for Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, Galatians, Paul writes that the law was put in charge to lead us to Jesus, a schoolmaster. The idea of looking at the law is to say, I can't keep this. And then we say to a merciful God, I need help. And that's the purpose of the law. Having been fulfilled by Jesus, we don't have to quibble over which parts of the Bible to take. So if you want to take the Bible literally, and we should whenever we can, You don't take the Bible literally when David writes that the trees of the field clap their hands. Trees don't have hands. So obviously that's not literal. It's metaphor. But every time you can, take the Bible literally. And if you're going to take it literally, then you realize that he was speaking to Israel with the law. And he wasn't speaking to you or to me. Here's a question from Robert, he says, what does it mean that a pastor or an elder must manage his household well? Uh, Robert, let me start off with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that 
that uh, somebody is disqualified from the office of pastor or elder. And by the way, pastor and elder, as you read them in the New Testament, are the same things. Uh, we've changed the meaning of the words uh, over the course of time throughout the centuries. But uh, as it relates to the pastoral epistles and, and, and talking about appointing elders in the churches, um, those are the, that's the office that we would call the, the pastor of a church. Um, uh, it does not mean that if a pastor has an unbelieving child, um, then then he's disqualified. It doesn't mean that if the pastor's wife uh, commits sin and runs off, then then the pastor's dis- disqualified. What it does mean is that his household needs to be governed by the very word of God. You know, we're not responsible. As a pastor, I'm not responsible for the choices adults make, even if those adults are related to me. But I am responsible to God for how I respond to those bad choices they make. And a pastor, to to manage his house well, needs to be a man who is the spiritual head of his household. Uh, I could never have a pastor whose wife was the head of the house. I just never could do that because that wouldn't be managing the household well. I couldn't have a pastor who allowed his children to sin in his house. A child needs to understand this house belongs to Jesus. We belong to him. As long as you live in this house, we're going to honor him. Now, we can't make them believe, but we can make them behave. And there needs to be consequences uh, if they don't. So that's what managing his household well. Let me also say this, and this will be the last question that I get for, get to today. But um, it also means that the, the, the pastor elder has to have a home that that just oozes Jesus, meaning there needs to be love in that house. There needs to be kindness. You know, in a pastor's home, Robert, there should never be raised voices in anger. Arguing should be a thing of the past. You have different opinions, different ideas, but a pastor says, well, let's find out what God says, and then the husband and wife equally yoked, then do what God tells them to do. So that's managing the household. It, it's making sure that time and attention is given to Bible study, family devotions. The, 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 the man, the pastor, needs to be a man who uh, uh, partners with his wife in the raising of children, in the issues of the everyday 21st century house. Um, he needs to be a man who prays with and for his wife and his children. Uh, the pastors and ought to be able to say, oh, daddy's favorite book is easy. It's the Bible. We ought, we ought to be walking in the spirit. And that's what it means to manage his household well. Not just by verbal order, but by example. And remember, there's nothing more important that we can do than to set an example of Christ's likeness for our family. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. Appreciate the phone calls and the questions. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. You have been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.